The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father God, so much of the Christian life is bound up in just trusting what you've said to be true. Just believing what you've said, not only about yourself, but about us, your children. And so as we come to your word this morning, I'm desperately hoping and, and asking, Father, that you would allow nothing that I say to muddy the waters or to cause confusion, that you would allow these, your people, to hear and believe the word of their Father regarding who they are and what they are and where they are, even now. Father, we ask that you would do this for your glory and our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I, as you would probably imagine, have opportunity to have a lot of conversations with people with regards to how we're intended to handle the Bible. In, in what way does God expect his people to interpret, to understand the scriptures? And as you know, because this is your practice and understanding as well, we allow scripture to interpret scripture. We come to a passage in God's word that might not be immediately and altogether clear to us. And we then go to other passages in his holy word and allow the clear things to interpret for us the less clear things, and if our understanding of a particular text is clearly spoken against somewhere else, or we, we can't find any support for it anywhere in, in the scriptures, we know probably we have missed the mark, and we need to go back to the drawing board. And sometimes in, in these conversations that I have with folks, as it's clear that we are thinking very differently about how we're meant to handle God's word, I'll, I'll call pause and I'll, and I'll look to them and I'll say, time out. I need you to understand that it's not just scripture that is interpreted by scripture. It's everything in my life that is interpreted by this word. I don't have the ability to understand what's happened when I stub my toe apart from what God says in his word. I certainly don't have any hope of rightly responding to what has happened when I stub my toe, apart from what God has said in his word. Now, this kind of thinking, it will put you out of lockstep. It will put you out of fellowship with much of the believing world. They'll, they'll use these days, you'll hear from time to time, words like biblicist thrown around as if it were a put down, that we restrict ourselves to God's word as the only sufficient and authoritative and inerrant word for all that we need to know. Now, I'm not denying that God speaks in other ways. I'm not denying that God has revealed himself in the cosmos. I'm not, not denying that God speaks to us in our conscience. And I'm not in any way insinuating that that speech is in any way errant. God doesn't have perfect words and kind of perfect words. God doesn't have powerful words and not so powerful words. 
God, God doesn't have authoritative words and words that you can take or you can leave. All of God's speech, all of God's revelation is utterly perfect. But, but the problem with these kinds of general revelation, I shouldn't say the problem with the revelation, but from our perspective, the, the difficulty is in our understanding of these things. It's incredibly difficult for man to look to the stars and understand what he's intended to understand from the stars. This is why we see Jesus saying things to those who surrounded him like, consider the birds of the field, birds of the air, consider the flowers of the field. Because he knows you're not going to know what to do with this. What should you do? You should look to the birds of the air and the flowers of the field and recognize your father in heaven will meet your every last need. Therefore, you need not be anxious. But he knows that the fickle hearts and the sin-stained minds of man won't make that connection unless he looks to us and expresses it in language, in his word. In addition to this, this general revelation, while it is inerrant, it is sufficient. It's sufficient for another task. The scripture tells us that it's sufficient to leave men without excuse and condemned before God. The things that we need to know about salvation, about a life lived in holiness to this God whom we now call Father, that is found in this word. Otherwise, if we restrict ourselves, or we don't restrict ourselves, rather say, to what this word has to say about the experiences we have in this life, we're left to follow our own hearts, and our hearts are deceptive and wicked. We're left to follow our own thoughts, and our own thoughts are all manner of confused and, and warped. So we come back to this word, not just to understand the word, but to understand all that happens to us in this life, especially in the realm of our salvation. I talk to so many people, believers, I, I trust them to be believers, and I talk to them about what God has done in salvation. And what I find is a whole lot of what they think might have happened from, from their personal experience, what they think has gone on, and they're relying on that to the detriment of this. So we need to be reminded often that when we come to this word, it is our minds that need to be reformed. I use the example once of trying to put Plato back into the jug. It's a, a constant work, constantly reforming our minds to what he has said because we know that we're surrounded by a world that's constantly working to deform us. And so if we're gonna understand what God has done in salvation, we understand who he is and who he has called us to be. If we're going to believe his words about, as I prayed earlier, who we are and where we are, then we must come and rest in his promises, trust in his words. As David read earlier, understanding that what he has given us in this word is more valuable than much fine gold, it's sweeter than honeycomb. I pray that we as a people would treat it like that. I ask you to go ahead and return to your feet, please. We return to the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God, the second chapter of Ephesians, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Now, as you are surely aware and are probably tired of hearing by now, it was when we were dead in our sins, when this but God came crashing into our lives, when we were undeserving of anything but God's wrath, when we were incapable and incapacitated from doing anything that might please God, when we were insensitive and unresponsive to his glory, even to the offer of the gospel, there was nothing in us that enabled us to turn in repentance and faith. And yet because of his rich mercy and great love, this love that he had set upon us from before the foundation of the world, from eternity past, it was because of this love, before we had been born and done either good or bad, existing nowhere other than the mind and the will and the purpose of God, it was there when he determined that he would come and do this thing that is Summed up in two words, but God, he made us alive. He gave us eyes to see the glory of God. He gave us ears to hear the voice of God. He gave us hearts to believe the promises of God. He gave us the will to turn in repentant faith and trust in God. Now, I need to make very clear to you that these are not new capacities or faculties. The non-believer, the unregenerate man, the man who is still dead in his sins, he still has the ability to want and will and think and understand all kinds of things. As we've said over and over again, this is a very active kind of deadness. And the faculties, the abilities of this man, they're going to look identical to the faculties and the abilities of the regenerate man. What we're dealing with here is a new disposition, the direction of the will and the heart. As I've tried to remind you over and over again, Man will always choose what he most strongly desires at any given moment. People want what they want. And what dead men want is anything but Christ. Doesn't matter how beautiful he is. Doesn't matter how true the promise is. You can't turn your heart and force yourself to want the things that you don't want. Well, I've warned you so often that the Christian faith is not about holding your nose and choking down your vegetables. It's about new affections and new wants and new wills and new desires. That this is what we're dealing with, with this made alive. It's not that he granted us some new powers, it's that he changed our heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And so because of that, those who have been made alive, they will want Christ. Just as the unregenerate man, those who are dead in their sin, can't make themselves want something they don't want, they can't cause themselves to believe a gospel they don't believe. Those who have been born again, those who have been brought to life by this power of the Spirit, those have, who have been born from above, they're guaranteed to want Christ Jesus. 
and turn to him in repentant faith. That God is not stiff-arming any man that's trying to come to him. There's no man that says, I desperately want to believe the gospel. I desperately want to trust in Christ Jesus. I am repenting of my sin, but he just won't receive me. That's never the case. There are plenty of men that want the things that God offers. They may want forgiveness even. But they don't want the Christ of the Bible. Just as there's no one that's brought kicking and screaming to Christ. He gives you these new affections and wild horses couldn't keep you away. You come running to him as your everything because you've finally seen him and desired him as your everything. So one question that we might have is, very well, this is a, a work of God as we discovered last week. It's, it's a, a monergistic work. It's a one-sided work of God. But how does he do this work? Now, granted, there's great mystery in the way that he does it. Because it's an immediate work of God upon the believer, an unseen spiritual work, there's much that we will never fully understand. And, and yet there seems to be very clear teaching all throughout Scripture that the way that he does this is through his word. That this is God's pattern all throughout Scripture. It's the, it's the power of his word. See, because what happens is when he changes our affections and he turns our heart and he... And he enlightens our eyes and opens our ears because we are so guaranteed to come to Christ in repentant faith sometimes we can think that that repentant faith is the new life but the new life is something hidden the driver behind that again I say something spiritual and unseen in the hearts of men and yet God has a lot to say about this I think about Christ Jesus calling Lazarus from the tomb and there's much to be learned I, I, I God's timing, we will work through John's gospel. Maybe after we're done with the book of Ephesians, maybe a Sunday night, we'll work together through John's gospel because there, there's so much to be learned even just in this story. And you remember in John 11 that Mary and Martha send news to Jesus that the one who he loves, this man called Lazarus, that he is very, very sick. And you remember in verse 4 that he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God might be glorified through it. We, we, we might be tempted. Certainly we are tempted at various points to say, why has God chosen to do it this way? Why has God made it in such a way that all men fall and then some men are called to life while others are left dead in their sin? And why does he cause his, why does he allow his children to, why does he ordain that his children would walk through this season of deadness? As children of wrath? Well, the answer is that I might be glorified. It's to my glory that it works this way. Verse 5 says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister. Now, there's, there's paragraph breaks in Scripture that weren't there in the original. You understand that? And sometimes they can, they can, they can really separate some beautiful images that I think we are meant to see. And if you look in your Bible, if you look in your chapter of God's Word, there's a paragraph break there where he says it's for the glory of God so that the Son of Man might be glorified through it. And then it's almost as if it's separated and there's some other statement being made here. But no, it's because God desires to be glorified. It goes on to say, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You see that? Jesus loved Mary. He loved Martha. He loved Lazarus. So what did he do? Did he go at once and make sure that Lazarus didn't die? Did he even just speak a word from where he was and make sure that Lazarus was healed from a distance? Now, Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So, what was the response of that love? So, 
when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I love you. And so when I hear that you're sick and I have the power to heal you, I'm going to delay so that you die. Why? See above that you might see my glory. Because my glory is more precious than your wellness. My glory is more precious than whatever sorrow you're going to go through in the death of your brother. Do you understand it? This is why I've done it this way. We don't know the ins and the outs and all the answers to everything. But at the end of it all, we're stuck with nothing other than for my glory and your good. For you to see my glory is more precious than gold. More precious than the healing of your brother. So he delays. And down in verse 14, Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus has died. But for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So he goes to Lazarus and everyone is weeping and mourning. And verse 40, we read this. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And he prays to his father. Then in verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Did he need to speak that word? He's God. Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And he said to him, unbind him and let him go. The powerful word of God. I've heard preachers, you've probably heard preachers before say that the reason why Jesus called Lazarus by name is because if he had simply said, come out, every single dead person in all the earth would have risen up. This is the power of the word of God, the voice of God. That's how he does this. The word of God creates and it brings life and it brings light where there's nothing but deadness. In the beginning, how did God create? Let there be light and there was light through the powerful, effective, life-causing word of God. Things that otherwise were not come into being. That's the text that we looked at last week in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let the light shine out of the darkness. He's saying, you want to know how you came to this new spiritual life? You need to look back to the creation story. The same way that God worked in that way, the same power that was at work in breathing out the stars and the sun and the moon and creating life in a man made out of dirt. By that same power and that same word, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Through the power of his word. His word creates life. His word brings light. Something that was never before suddenly, suddenly is. James 1.18 says that of his own will he brought us forth. How? How did he bring us forth? By the word of truth. First Peter in his first chapter of that letter, he begins by saying... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We see very clearly here in the book of Ephesians, and I'm going to draw that out a little bit more later. We see very clearly how our resurrection is tied to the resurrection of Christ Jesus, us in him. But he goes on down later in that chapter, verse 23, he says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. How? Through the living and abiding word of God. It's the word of God that brings life. The word of God that brings light. It's the word of God that creates something that had not yet been. 
He goes on for clarification a bit later. He says that this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, this is where it gets real confusing, mystical, hard, hard to understand at times. You, you see, it's the word of God. I told you it's an immediate work of God upon the hearts of his people. He is not dependent upon the works of any man, upon the efforts of any man to bring people to life. When God determines a man will come to life, he comes to life. And yet all throughout his scripture, we see the way that his word speaks to the words of ordinary men in the preaching of the gospel. That as I'm preaching the gospel to you people right now, there are some of you that hear nothing but the word of a man. These are spiritual words. They're spiritually discerned. So for many, they hear just nothing but the ordinary words of a man wrestling with the Bible. But for some of you, above and beyond and outside of that is the word of your father speaking to your heart. You don't know how this happens. We just see the effects like the wind blowing. Again, I remind you, the effects aren't the life. The effects are the effects. The life comes in the heart in a way that we don't see it. But we can see the effects of that. And we see the Apostle Paul speaking about this very clearly. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. I've gone to this text numerous times because people can be very anxious. How do we know that he's chosen us? How do you know that he's caused us to be born again? Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. How can I know that God has caused this life? Because when the word is preached, it comes to you in power. The Holy Spirit takes this word and he does a work in your heart. And we see the effects of this. This is the effectual calling of God. It's a thing that not only enables men to respond to the gospel, it guarantees that they will. Just as when God said, let there be light, the light didn't say, I'll get back to you. Just as when he breathed out the stars, they thought, you know what, I didn't choose this. When he spoke life into the hearts of men, that life is guaranteed to happen. You'll hear many men that they equate this to a king's summons or a jury duty summons, right? You get a thing in the mail that says, hey, you got to show up in court. Or if you're in, a, in some monarchy, a message from the king, hey, you got to come. And this thing obligates you to come, right? But it doesn't enable you to come. And it doesn't guarantee that you're going to come. So the queen of England could stand outside and say, I command you all to come to me. And we say, number one, you're not our queen. But number two, maybe I don't have legs that can get there. Maybe I'm busy with something else. But the word of the God of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, it guarantees the thing that it commands happens. And we know that it can't happen unless he has done this work. John 8, 45, we read these words from Christ. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. What a, what a remarkable statement in and of itself. You don't believe me. Why don't you believe me? Expressly because I tell you the truth. You want your ears to be tickled. You would rather believe the lies of the enemy than believe the word of God. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you don't hear them is you're not of God. It isn't you're not of God because you refuse to hear my words. It's you can't hear my words because you're not of God. Especially in the moment when I speak the truth to you, you reject the truth 
because you're not of God. But we know, therefore, the opposite of this is, is spoken, that not only are those who are not of God unable to come to the truth and receive the truth, but all those who are born of God are guaranteed to come to the truth. In John's first letter, 1 John 5, 1, you'll probably remember this from our time, what was that now, four years ago in this book? He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, I've tried to stay away from Greek in my sermons. Number one, because you don't care most of the time. And number two, because my, week is, my Greek is so, so poor. But I'll tell you what happens. It's like when a little boy learns a new trick. You know, you learn to tie your shoe or <clears throat> blow a bubble or something. And you just want to show everybody. Sometimes I'm like, hey, look, I learned something in Greek. That's not what you're here for, for me to show off. But there are times when I think that it's relevant. And so I'll tell you that this word for believes, it's, it's a present and an active tense verb. It's a thing that is actively happening right now. Everyone who believes, like who believes right now? Everyone who is believing that Jesus is the Christ has been perfected, past tense, passive verb. You have been, this thing has been done. And it's got abiding consequences because of the thing that was done in the past. What are the abiding consequences? You believe today. This thing has happened and it brought this about. And he doesn't just say some people who have been born again believe. He says everyone. You understand? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Because this new birth, it's, it's a radical new life. Again, I tell you, with new affections and new desires and a new will. And, and you remember why John wrote that letter, hopefully. So many men have taken that letter and they've turned it into a you ought to book. Remember I talked about the, the tests of life, uh, respiration and uh, heartbeat and reflexes and things like this. And so we, we come to this book, which it's intended to show us what are the signs of life in a believer and we get all twisted up and upside down in the way that we understand it and we go oh goodness this is what a believer looks like I ought to do it well that's like me going to a corpse and telling him hey buddy you better breathe you better cause your heart to beat that's not the answer and the reason he wrote this wasn't to depress the believers there in the church and it, and it wasn't to cause doubt where there wasn't doubt it's because they were getting their heads kicked in they were exhausted. They had false teachers coming in. They had people leaving their church. And he's saying, look, I want you to know that many of these that went out from you, they went out because they weren't of us. But I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I don't want you doubting yourself here, guys. The enemy wants to plant seeds of doubt. And I want to tell you how you can know that you have eternal life. I don't want to give the enemy room to cause this doubt and fear and all the rest. And so he says, 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? You've been born of God. He goes on to say, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And that's one of the things that he's going to talk about here is that we see evidence not just in our belief of God, but our love for the brethren. You remember that Jesus had warned his disciples in John 15. He says that if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. The world hates you expressly because you're mine, because they're the world and you're mine. They can't love you because you're mine. So what kind of people can love you? 
Those who are also mine. That's what it goes on to say. First John four, seven. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So he's saying not only is it look around and you recognize I'm trusting in Christ Jesus. Therefore, I know that I've been born of him. Look around and see the affection you have for the brethren. Look at the way that your heart is knit together to the saints in unexplainable ways. Listen, I have so much love and affection for men in this church. I never thought possible that we would have never, we, we would have never be bound together under any other circumstances. I'll share with you a weird thing that's happened since I've become pastor. I was not an affectionate guy. Uh, Leanne Camp will tell you that. I've given her how many hugs is it? Like seven maybe? I've known her for 20-something years. She keeps count. That's how few hugs I offer. I'm not the most affectionate person, but one of the things that I have found since I've become pastor is I've become very physically affectionate with men. Those of you that have been around me, you know I'm always rubbing your shoulder or, or touch. Is this true, Dave? You're smiling. It's not, it's, not a, it's not, oh, this is what preachers do. It's, I love you. I love you in ways that aren't explainable. Look, you're a likable guy. We could be friends probably. But it's this. Do you understand? It's evidence that you've been born of him. And it's not just affectionate, physical. You know what I mean. It's more than this. It's a willingness to lay down your preferences, to give of your time, to open up your home, to die if necessary for the good of the brethren, for the saints. He says, this is one of those ways that you will know. Verse, verse John 5, 4, he says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. You, you remember that in those first three chapters, he says that we are following the course of the world. We're following the pattern of this world. We're, we're, we're following the, the way that this age is going. We're going along with them. He says, no, but if you've been born of God, you've overcome the world. And he says that this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. How does he break us free from that love for the world? How does he break us free from following the pattern of the world? He gives us faith in his promises. So that all of a sudden there's this holy discontentment with the ways of the world. Their promises don't mean anything to you anymore. Their threats don't mean anything to you anymore. I'm trusting in what my father says. I have faith that he will make good on his promises. And in this, I've overcome the world. The pull that the world once had on me, it's just not there anymore. Do you sense that in your life? Not only are you trusting in Christ, but do you sense that you have a love for the saints, for the brethren that you didn't have before? You've been born of God. Do you sense that you have, in this way, overcome the world, that you're trusting in God's promises more than you're trusting in the things that they dangle before you or the threats that they make? And you've been born of God. 1 John 5, 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch them. You remember that we said that we are not only following, not only were we once following the course of this world, we were also following the prince of the power of the air. How does he get us to follow him? In large part through threat, through accusation, and through temptation, of course. It says here, he can't touch us. Because the one that we have been bound to, Christ Jesus our Lord, he has overcome him. Therefore, it says that we will... We know that everyone born of God does not keep on sinning. This doesn't mean perfection. You know this. 1 John 3, 8 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning 
Is this your practice? Is this your pattern? Are you comfortable in sin? When a brother comes to you and says, brother, this is sin is your response. Well, it's just my practice. Or maybe I'm practicing to get good. I don't know how you want to take that. Or is there a different pattern in your life? A different way? For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning. Why? Because he has been born of God. Why do lives change? Because you've been born of God. Why I stand in this place and I tell you over and over and over again, you must get the indicatives before you can move to the imperatives. You must know who you are and what has happened to you. You must know about the new birth or you won't be able to tackle or understand or deal with the law of God. Verse John 2, 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The ability to practice anything that might be classified as righteous, not only turning from what is evil, but walking in any level of righteousness and holiness, you can be sure that that came from being born of him. Again, going back to the analogy of a man that's alive versus a man who's dead. How can I know that you're alive? Because you're breathing and dead men don't breathe. Because your heart's beating and dead men don't have a pulse. Do you understand? Now, again, obviously, we're not talking about a picture of absolute perfection. That we still continue to live despite all of this, despite a, a pattern of righteousness and a pattern away from sin, despite a love for the brother, brothers that you didn't otherwise have, despite your faith in Christ Jesus, we know that he has not yet taken us out of this world. That we continue to live in this world under the power of the evil one. And it's still, even within our heart, there's those little pockets, those little outposts of rebellion, those little flares that continue to come up. This is why... Paul would say in Romans 7, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. For I delight in the law and my inward being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, some men come to that passage and they believe, and I, I won't fight them to the death on it, and they believe that this is Paul speaking about who he formerly was. He's talking about the old man doing things that he didn't want to do and not being able to do the things that he wants to do. But I submit to you that a non-believer doesn't speak like this wretched man that I am. They might be embarrassed of their sin. They might hate the consequences, but they don't view in themselves a body of death. They don't count sin as death. They don't count themselves to be wretched ones in need of, what does he say, delivery. But listen to the way he goes on, verse 25. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the answer. Who will deliver me? Christ Jesus, our Lord, will deliver me from the body of death, even as he has already relieved my soul. He has set me free from bondage to sin. I need to move quickly as we move towards the table, but we must recognize that you've heard pastors that they like to use the three P's with regards to our relationship to sin and, and redemption. That in justification, in, in coming to Christ Jesus as Lord, he has dealt with the punishment of sin. The punishment of sin has been dealt with once and for all in Christ Jesus on the cross. And he talks about, in redemption, the fact that he has also set us free from the power of sin. And I'm going to read to you Romans 6 here in a moment that speaks about that. No longer being slaves to sin. No longer being in bondage to sin. But that there's a P yet to come, and that's being set free from the presence of sin. That that doesn't come to the final resurrection. That as long as we live on this earth, we will continue to be surrounded by sin. 
We'll continue to have to make war on our own flesh as it pops up. But we must recognize that what we're talking about here is not some split personality. Christian, you're not two people. Do you understand? That, that while the flesh still continues to pop up and while Satan may continue to still taunt, the old man, the old Jew, he's dead. And that's the picture that I want you to see as we prepare to move to the table and we consider what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 2. I take you to Romans 6. Beginning in verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? As I spoke to the children earlier before the baptism, I told them to be baptized into Christ. What happens when you're baptized into water? You're surrounded by it. You're immersed in it. You go down into it. That's what it means to be baptized into Christ. I am in Christ. I am hidden in Christ. That those who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know, beloved, whenever Paul says, whenever the word of God speaks to Christians, whenever he speaks to the saints and he says the words, we know, your ears ought to perk up and say, do I know this? I need to know this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For anyone who has died to sin has been set free from sin. He goes on in verse 11 and tells us what do we do with this information? Consider yourself therefore dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. In verse 14, the same thing. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. This is what I need you to see, not just as we prepare to come to the Lord's table together, but as we move together, we're going to take a break from Ephesians. Next week, we're going to talk about Palm Sunday. And obviously, the following week, we're going to go through Holy Week. We're going to consider everything that happened to Christ Jesus. Consider his passion. Consider his death. Consider his resurrection. And if we're not right at this point right here, you're going to miss the meaning of Easter. You're going to look and you're going to say something miraculous has happened. Christ Jesus has risen from the grave. Therefore, I know that he must be the son of God and that all his promises must be true. To every single one of those things, I say yes and amen. But there's more. There's more. And that's what Paul wants us to see. There's, a, there's three very rare words that he uses here in Ephesians 2. Each of them beginning with the prefix soon, S-U-N. It says that we were made alive together with Christ. That he raised us up with him. That he seated us with him. Those are compound words that begin with the, the prefix soon, S-U-N. That just means with or together. It's, it's the same place that we get our prefix S-Y-N, sin, as in synthesis. What is a synthesis? It's two things coming together. And see, he's making clear here, this is a very rare word, he's making clear here that we were made alive, not just were we made alive, we were made alive with Christ, united with Christ. That we were raised up with Christ. That we are seated with Christ. Now, we, we've talked about the ways in which we are in Christ. We've talked about the ways in which all that he accomplished benefits us. There's one way in which he's accomplished us as our representative, as our federal head. Remember we read earlier that as in Adam all died and Christ many shall live. 
that, that, the, that the picture here is that Adam was our representative, our federal head. He spoke for the whole of humanity. And when he failed, we failed in him. That when Christ Jesus conquered and fulfilled all righteousness and died and rose again, that he was our representative. And therefore, all that he did is credited to us. But that's not the only pictures that we see in the scripture. Because we also see pictures of something much more mystical and organic and, and living. We see in John 15 talk about a vine and branches. We see here in the book of Ephesians talk about a wife and a husband. More specifically here in Ephesians 1, right before this, we see talk about a body and a head. It's talking about the union that we have in Christ, not just some representative union, but a real and living and organic and mystical union. And so you recognize that here we are and we were dead in sin. I can't rush through this, so we're in it now. I need to slow down. We were dead in sin. You were a dead man walking. That dead man had to die. Because of our deadness in sin, the law and the curse had a claim on us. We had a mountain of debt, and as long as you're alive, that debt remains. The wages of sin are death, and we were owed nothing but death. And so that when we read that Christ Jesus died, that when we read that those who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death, that's what that's saying. That when Christ Jesus died on the cross, it was as if you in him also died. Paying the wage of that sin that was owed. So that now death no longer has a claim over you. No longer has any power over you. Look, you come to my house, if I die tomorrow and the tax man or the debt collector or somebody comes to my house, I'm looking for Josh Seal. He's dead. You got nothing to do with him. There's no claim that death can have over us, that the curse can have over us because he took the curse upon himself. That death delivered its best blow. That sin brought with it its payment. That Jesus drunk it down in full and we in him died. Are you still with me? But he goes on to say that in addition to this, Galatians 2.20, for though I have died to the law so that I might live to, so excuse me, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, but he doesn't stay with the crucifixion. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So it isn't just that we died in Christ. It isn't just that our sin was paid for in Christ. It's just that we weren't united to him in the crucifixion. It's that as he was raised from the dead, we too have been raised. To walk in a newness of life. Think about how grotesque and weird it would have been when Christ raised Lazarus from the dead. For him to stay stinky and bound in the tomb. He called him out to something new. I want you to think about the life of Christ Jesus as he came out of the grave. Glorified. A new spiritual body. That's a picture of what he's done to us. It's a picture of what he will do for us in the resurrection, our own glorified bodies. But even now in the resurrection that we enjoy, this spiritual resurrection, having been raised with him, we're raised to a new kind of life. We're transferred out of an old world, out of an old family, out of an old pattern and into something altogether new. We've been raised up with him and seated in heavenly places so that sin no longer has dominion over us. There was a time when men were slaves to sin. He's saying you as one who have died to sin in Christ, who have, raised to, who have raised to life in Christ, sin is no longer your master. Sin can't command you what to do. 
So this is the only way that we preach to men who are struggling with sin, to Christian men and women who are struggling with sin. We need to look to them and tell them, you're living like a slave. I heard Rusty Ellisor one time preach a sermon. Y'all know, those of you have been around for a long time, you know Brother Rusty was pastor here and now he's pastor up the road at an Anglican church. And I don't, know, I don't know if this is his original um, analogy, but it's a beautiful one. He talks about Juneteenth, Juneteenth. And some of you may know that the Emancipation Proclamation was signed something like 30 months before word got to the slaves in Galveston that they had been set free. So that what you had was you had this freedom of the slaves. It had been accomplished. It had been signed. It had been done. But you had these men continuing to live like slaves because nobody came and told them, you're free. So that Juneteenth is a celebration of when that news reached the slaves in Galveston and told them, don't you know you're free? But how foolish would it have been then for those slaves to continue to allow their master to tell them what to do? To continue to enslave them when they've been set free. And so that's the thing that I need you to recognize. I'm calling you to recognize that as we see the crucifixion of Christ Jesus during Holy Week, as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ Jesus on Easter Sunday, you're not just witnessing a powerful working of God. You're witnessing the same powerful working of God by which you have been raised and you're not the old you anymore. You are not enslaved any longer. Therefore, as he goes on to say, we must set our minds on things above. We must set our hearts on things above. Who's saying I left my heart in San Francisco? Tony Bennett or somebody? Your heart's in heaven. Your life is in heaven, hidden in Christ in heaven. So we don't set our hearts on the things that are here. We don't live like slaves that are here. We recognize what we're witnessing in there is not only the resurrection of Christ Jesus, but our resurrection and our freedom. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you for your son, Christ Jesus, not only all that he accomplished, the, the, the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, the, the non-Christian can say Christ Jesus died and he rose again. Only the Christian can say he died and he rose again for me. So Father, I pray that you help us to live like that. And as we come to this table this morning, that you would, you would strengthen us here as your son comes, as we feast upon his body and as we participate in all that he did. Father, I pray that we would be strengthened. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.